0: Yeah. <sweak> to Cinema Journal Presents Aka I am Christine Becker.
1: And I am Michael Cackman.
0: And I probably sound like really excited right now. And you it's do. it's I think it's manic energy wow. after a day of day one of the wow. semester. And I'm just fired up and also completely exhausted oh, at the same so time. Oh, that's so neat. Yep. Tell me more about it. I can't because I can't remember what happened today. Literally, if you came in and asked me, what did I say in class today? I'm like, <laughs> I'm... Right. I think it went well. Yep. No one stormed out in the middle of class.
1: I had, I, well, my classes started today, too. Uh, we're on similar schedules. And, and there, I know what you mean, that moment where you're kind of, you're like going through all your first day, get to know you, wave your arms around in the air and stuff, and, and you see smiles and nods. And you're not sure if it's because they're all agreeing with one another that you're crazy or whether they're actually on board
0: and sometimes you don't even know until the end. You get your evals back, and you know, even then, you still sometimes don't even know how you did. Yeah,
1: you know, we could actually do a whole episode on course evaluations.
0: We should actually. You know what? I had somebody
1: say to me in my course evaluations. They said, um, "I tried too hard with my Wayne's World joke."
0: You tried too hard with yeah. your Wayne's World yeah, joke. Yeah, because you know that you know
1: in Wayne's World when they have flashbacks. Yeah, Wayne would go. I'm
0: sure, I've done that. Who yeah, hasn't? Who hasn't a, done that? In front that? Of a
1: classroom, done that. And I've done that. And, and I did it. You know, I was like referencing something that happened in the. You know, this is like thirteenth week of the class. Okay, maybe I started doing it in the fourth week, but somewhere down the road in the class, I wanted to refer back to something we had talked about in the second or third week. And um, and so I said, "Remember, back in second week."
0: Um, speaking of, though, we did want to let you know we are looking f- through our evals that yeah. you wrote up of the Acamedia survey. So there's, we're...
1: if there's one thing we like, it's being evaluated <laughs> multiple times, multiple ways, multiple right. ways by multiple
0: people. Well, I was actually, where we actually made Bill um, look at the results, because I was afraid that there might be something that someone would just say something that would stick in my mind. Kind of like when you get a a, a comment, like your Wayne's World comment, and just sort of sticks in your brain and... You can't shake it. And so we made Bill look at the results. So Bill's that's still good. going through sifting through the survey results. And he has
1: to he had to go through this whole training with Price Waterhouse to get him right. certified There's to a whole handle the system.
0: It. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we will report to you back on that in the next episode and we will find out who won the new car. Yeah. A new
1: a brand new car. Brand new car. Yeah.
0: Fresh out of the showroom.
1: Yeah. Showroom is
0: Yeah, we'll call
1: it the showroom. All that's right. what we're, that's what we'll call it.
0: So uh, we do have some content for you this month. Yeah, I have, lots of good stuff. Yeah, I have an interview with Jeremy Butler and his research into television style.
1: We also are bringing you another installment of the SEMS Oral History Project, this time an interview with Linda Williams.
0: Super excited about that. Yeah, good stuff. All right, well, let's kick things off with Jeremy Butler. <laughs> Jeremy Butler is a professor in the Department of Telecommunication and Film at the University of Alabama, and he's taught television, film, and new media courses since 1977. His books include Television Style, published by Rutledge in 2010, and the textbook Television Critical Methods and Applications, now in its fourth edition. He's also published articles on Mad Men, ER, Roseanne, Miami Vice, Imitation of Life, and the soap opera, and he's currently researching a book on the sitcom. For some time now, Butler has been active in online educational resources for film and TV studies. He created Screen L and Screen Cite, two of the earliest internet resources for film and TV teachers and students. And he served as the Society for Cinema and Media Studies' first information technology officer, where, he tells me, he convinced SCS, as it was called at the time, to start using this thing called email. In addition to Butler's duties as a film and TV professor, he also hosts a weekly radio program, All Things Acoustic, on Alabama Public Radio. So we're excited to have Jeremy Butler here on the podcast. So you are, of course, a media study scholar, but also a radio host yourself. So we look forward to the dulcet tones of Jeremy Butler here on Media.
2: That's right.
0: Oh, wow. Silky.
2: <laughs> Silky smooth, that's me.
0: <laughs> so yeah, what we're most interested in, though, is your media study scholarship. And in particular, our starting point is your Cinema Journal article, Statistical Analysis of Television Style, What Numbers Tell Us About TV Editing, So as the title indicates, your article uses some heavy duty statistical analysis. But before all of you humanities-based media study scholars out there click fast forward on your podcast players, let's hear Jeremy out. So Jeremy, you say that humanities has really been missing out on the value of using statistical methods. And this is especially the case in the digital humanities era, where we have an ever-growing collection of tools enabling statistical analysis literally at our fingertips. And you engagingly write in the article For scholars such as myself, trained in 1970s humanities-based film studies programs, this is a rather unnerving prospect. Does this digital manipulation offer us anything that we could not discover while watching a movie in the dark and scratching cuneiform notes with a stylus into a clay tablet? So before we delve into the details of what you actually found in this particular study, I first want to ask you about what motivated you to put down that stylus and test out this digital form of statistical analysis.
2: That's right. It was a scary thing, Chris, uh, because I think most of us who came through conventional film studies programs in the late 1970s really had a, well, I'd have to say a a disdain, but also sort of a phobia about using statistical methods. But I've always had an interest from way back in my undergraduate days with reverse engineering film and TV. You know, I, I enjoyed... Uh, The sort of decoupage exercises where you'd work on a single scene and just break that scene down and try to understand why each shot was composed the way it was composed and why each shot lasted the length that it did and what sort of impact that had and how the filmmaker was guiding our attention through this. So I've been doing that kind of reverse engineering of uh, film first and then TV shows since I think probably the 1970s, and I was inspired back then also by well, people like Raymond Ballure and Stephen Heath who were also engaged in a really detailed, close textual analysis. And, of course, I was also inspired by you know, David Boardwell and Kristen Thompson, whose film art also encourages people to really look close at, uh, at style. And so I wrote a... <laughs> unpublishable dissertation on film style, a theory of film style, that tried to get a sense of how that works. But I was always trying, I was always frustrated by how imprecise our descriptions of stylistic elements were. You know, we might say, oh, this film, film has very slow editing. Well, what does slow editing mean? Uh, this that You might say this film has a preponderance of high angle shots. Well, what is a preponderance? So I got more and more frustrated with the imprecision of talking about elements of style and their impact. And then um, I think it was Tara McPherson had this clarion call to action, uh, encouraging people to try to blend... Uh, digital analysis with humanities and she got me to thinking about digital humanities and what that might mean to film studies in particular and how we can use these digital tools that have evolved to um, develop more precise ways to talk about film style because that's always been my interest and of course TV style and the other thing that I think encouraged me to jump off that cliff at this point was having colleagues who are statisticians and who are really, were really generous with their knowledge. Cause I gotta, I have to emphasize that I am still just, uh, I don't know exactly a, a newbie in the world of statistical analysis. And if I didn't have people like Shu Ajo here at the University of Alabama and uh, Rob Potter at Indiana University, I think most digital humanities almost by necessity have to be collaborative works, collaborative efforts. And if I hadn't had them, I wouldn't have made, been able to do the kind of work I was doing. So you put all those factors together, you know a longstanding interest in detailed analysis of style, a, um, a rise in digital humanities in general, uh, colleagues who are willing to take my hand and lead me through the labyrinth that is can be statistical analysis and my own sort of noodling around with um uh I'm, well, I'm also a dilettante when it comes to programming. So I can't, you know, I just enjoyed noodling around with computers. And
0: that's one thing that I find really fascinating about this, because you not only adopted digital technologies, but you created your own, you created your own tool. So you create a piece of software called ShotLogger, an online digital humanities application for measuring shot lengths. Exactly. So. Can you tell us more about Shot Logger? What does the software do? What information does it enable you to collect and analyze?
2: Right. Uh, so, Shot Logger is a semi automatic way of measuring the length of shots in films and TV programs. Um, there You're able to watch a TV program, to watch a film on your computer. And I won't go into all the kind of boring details, but it allows you to, um, to measure the, the length of every single shot. So once you've got that data collected, then the question becomes, what do you do with it? Sort of what's the point? And I had created ShotLogger years ago with no real idea idea for how it could be used for anything. It was just kind of, oh, isn't this cool? I can do this. I can do that. And it's going to tell me what the average shot length is for Citizen Kane. Uh, Great. (laughs) So I was kind of at a loss for how this could possibly be of any interest to anybody. Statistics? It's pure description, basically. It only becomes interesting, you can only answer the so what question if you can correlate it with something else. So I didn't have an answer to that question. It's like, I had shot logger data, I had nothing to correlate it with. And then I thought, well, Happy Days is an odd uh, example of a TV program. And uh, I, don't, I hope this doesn't offend any of the podcast listeners, but Happy Days has not aged well. And let me tell you, it is pretty much laugh free. Uh, <laughs> I would say at this stage. Oh
0: no! And how many episodes? Gosh, did you? it was. I think it was
2: seventy. Let's see, what was the final total? <laughs> uh, I have to say that I subjected some of my poor research assistants to some of the analytical work. We went through eighty-seven episodes. Wow! And measured the shot length of every single shot in those eighty. It was seventeen thousand shots. Mm. But fortunately, Lager automates most of that, mm-hmm. so it's it's not a show that I would seek out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be binge watching Happy Days for pleasure. Uh, but it's odd in that it started; its uh, first two seasons were done single camera, and Gary Marshall, the producer creator, um, wanted to make little mini movies every week. But that, but the that was seen to be too soft, as he put it, that it wasn't seemed to um, be funny enough. And so during the second season, they had one episode that they tried multi, multi-camera with a live audience. And then they decided that from then on, from the third season on, they would do it multiple camera. So the question became, for me, if you change that production element, if you go from single camera to multiple camera with... E- the same cast a lot a lot of it is the same director there's some different editors but it's pretty much the same cast and most of the same crew is there going to be a difference in how the shots how the um, programs the episodes are edited so that became my correlation is there a correlation between the statistical description of how fast and slow the editing is and this production change from single camera to multiple camera.
0: So you started out with three hypotheses you wanted to test with this software and then analyzing the, the results from from Happy Day. So can you real quick summarize for us, and what were those hypotheses? What did you end up uh, finding? Were you surprised by anything you found?
2: Uh, the three hypotheses were, first of all, a, a really general one that it, it's just it's common sense, that the editing pace of U.S. narrative TV programs has increased between 1951 and 2011. And everybody knows that just intuitively, because it seems like things are moving much quicker on film and TV. But I wanted to know sort of more precisely what the difference was. So the results from that hypothesis, you know, has editing pace accelerated? Yes, it has. And I was able to to chart exactly how quickly it's accelerating. Mm -hmm. So we're now down to uh, a median shot length of about three seconds in today's television programs. Mm -hmm. The second question was the one more specifically about Happy Days, and that was, is the editing pace of the single-camera episodes significantly different from the multiple-camera episodes? And the results I found there are are slightly complicated, but I'll try to sort of boil them down. The first result was that single-camera shows are edited slower than multiple-camera shows in terms of their average shot length. But, The other thing is that the single-camera shows have a lot more variation in the lengths of their shots. So there can be really long shots and really short shots, whereas in multiple-camera shows, everything clusters around the same length. So what my study shows is that single-camera shows have a greater variety in terms of their lengths, longer, shorter multiple camera shows before a studio audience, everything tends to be cut at about the same length. So that was the, the main finding there. And then the third finding was, third hypothesis was, are the uh, segments of Happy Days, you know, the segments in between commercials, the acts, are those segments paced differently? Is the first segment of the show slower or longer than the last segment? And what I found, doing the statistical analysis of that is they don't. You would think that they would maybe speed up at the start or speed up at the end, but they don't, they just don't. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, with statistics, even if you have a result that disproves your hypothesis, you're still learning something.
0: And there was even additional details you found that presumably weren't part of the main things you were going into to to look for. But the one I found most fascinating was that you found one of the editors. Of course, there's a team of editors who work on different episodes. But you found one editor in particular, his episodes tended to be cut more quickly. And I found that a really intriguing notion. And I wonder if you could say more about that in terms of how we generally study style and who we attribute style to.
2: So I think... In statistical analysis, we've seen it, but just in general, I think most analyses of style are, are looking for an author, an tour. So when I looked at Happy Days, I was trying mostly to remove the question of the author from it by looking at a production unit where the director, the cinematographer, you know, most of the people stayed the same, but the one exception to that was the editors. There were five different editors that worked on these four seasons that I looked at. And once I got beyond my basic hypotheses, I started thinking, well, would the editors have had an impact on how these things were cut? And so I ran what's called an ANOVA on the shot lengths of these five different editors. And sure enough, uh, one guy, Carl Mahakian, or maybe Mahakian, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, had his episodes were cut differently from everybody else's. And it's the sort of thing that you could not discover without statistical analysis. I, I mean I challenge anybody to look at these eighty seven episodes and it would drive them <laughs> crazy to do so. But to just watch eighty seven episodes of Happy Days and distinguish the editing pace from, you know, one editor to another. It just could not be done. Right. So, you know, what that leads me to is is the things that statistical analysis offers us that conventional analysis cannot provide is to look at large amounts of data, you know, 87 episodes, 17,000 shots. The, The human mind can't, you know, analyze that much data, but the computer can. So, Statistical analysis allows you to deal with really large amounts of information and with really small, subtle amounts of information. So the differences among the editor's uh, methods of cutting these films It's pretty subtle. It's very small, and it's not the sort of thing that you would pick up on. I don't think just from watching the show, the episodes.
0: Now, uh, Cinema Journal authors get a chance to write follow-up essays. You wrote in your afterthoughts essay, I love this that in keeping with TV convention, you've created a spinoff of uh, Shotlogger called Laughlogger. So, uh, what do you analyze with that, and do you see other kind of you know other spinoffs of this that you think you or other researchers could take advantage of?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking of starting a multiple-camera sitcom based on. <laughs> no, I, I what I what I, I just had a small epiphany, a very very small epiphany that uh, shot logger could be rejiggered to deal with any time-based thing on film, uh, film or television, and so uh, I started looking at shows that have laugh tracks, with the thought that well we have a I mean, I think some people assume that the number of jokes, that the amount of laughs is increasing or decreasing. I don't even know what people assume. But we presume, I think, that the laugh tracks, the amount of laughter in, say, the Big Bang Theory is different from that of I Love Lucy. hmm so what I decided to do, and I found a, a research assistant who was actually really excited about the idea, is to use ShotLogger to mark the, to measure the time in between the beginnings of laughs. And so what I've done is, we've done about maybe 30 episodes at this point. It's, so it's very preliminary, but I, I've created a scale of laughs per minute, <laughs> in tv sitcoms and of course it doesn't work on single camera sitcoms without laugh tracks but laughs per minute so to give you an example i love lucy 1953 it's it's essentially three laughs per minute if you compare that with the big bang theory uh say an episode from 2008 they have nine wow laughs per minute so it's three times as many laughs, laughs in the big bang theory than in i love lucy and i have no answer to the so what question it's like, well so what so there's three laughs per minute and i love lucy who cares but but I, i'm looking
0: <laughs> well that's the that's the fun of what we do you know we kind of observe this random thing and then we have to go figure out the so what and that becomes the fun part of our job so Yeah, that's right <laughs>
2: Uh, you know, I'm working currently on a, a new book on TV sitcom, but I'm at that fun, random period of the research where I'm just reading stuff and reading stuff about radio sitcoms, which I'd never read much about before. And I'm, you know, thinking about this and thinking about that. It's I'm in that kind of fun, exploratory <laughs> <laughs> point of it. But one thing I'll mention is that when Brett Mills wrote just this very, he wrote a very I thought, useful uh, overview of the sitcom back in 2009. It's a pretty short book, but it's got a lot of insight. And when he wrote it in 2009, he had to start out by defending the sitcom, which at that point was almost dead. You know, in the early 2000s, the sitcom was at a low point. And as we all know, it's come roaring back with Big Bang Theory and Modern Family and the UK and US versions of The Office and things like that. So... One thing that I think always intrigues me about the sitcom is how long lived it is and how uh, durable it is. And so I'll be looking back, you know, trying to obviously see sort of uh, cultural markers, uh, you know, just changes in discourse about the family. And, you know, sort of, those are the sorts of things I'll be looking at uh, in the sitcom. But uh, fortunately, I don't have to begin with a defense of its popularity since <laughs> it's back.
0: <laughs> you're, not a, you're not a multi-cam fan?
2: Oh, no, I like multi... In fact, uh, I watch Big Bang Theory pretty regularly, Mm -hmm. Um, although I have to say that the YouTube videos where they remove the laugh track of Big Bang Theory are pretty spooky.
0: Yeah, it's a very... (laughs) you know, it's a very strange experience. And usually people pull those out to, to mock the sitcom, which I find Mm -hmm. ridiculous because it's made to have the laughter in there. So you pull out the laughter, you're destroying the entire essence of what they were trying to do. But it also is a fascinating experiment in aesthetics and the impact of something being there and not being there. It's a really interesting, I like it as an experiment, not a judgment on the sitcom, but as an experiment, it's a really fascinating, um, you know, form of video.
2: Yeah, I'm entirely with you on that. And the laugh track is, is it's actually a bit of a misnomer because it's more of a response track. I mean, you get ooze, you get ah, aw- it's not just laughter mm-hmm. that's on the laugh track. So I, I think it's a a more complicated aesthetic question than just laughter or absence or presence. I, I find those sorts of questions fascinating. And my personal preference is t- for single camera sitcoms, you know, I'm a big fan of The Office and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, But I've been watching, lately I've been watching uh, Lisa Kudrow's uh, The Comeback.
0: Yeah, it's had an amazing season.
2: I know, but it's, I mean, a comedy in name only. (laughs) With many of these uh, so-called cringeworthy sitcoms, uh, it's really a tragedy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course there's been for centuries questions about the difference between comedy and tragedy and boy in that show it's pretty thin
0: mm. <laughs> you can measure the the pauses that you know how long they make a stew yeah. in these painful moments
2: yeah exactly and you none know, of the silences yeah mm-hmm. i have not thought about that i might have to do a silence logger too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we're creating all kinds of spinoffs here
2: yeah exactly because i've talked to one of the directors and one of the creators of the u.s version of the office ken Quapas, mm-hmm. and he very he had a very specific sense of how silence should function in that show uh, in order to let characters sort of stew. And, you know, so, yeah, silence is an incredibly important part of that or, you know, Larry David stuff or whatever. But anyway, so that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm in the fun part of that project now. I haven't got to, like, the indexing or anything like that.
0: We can statistically analyze the the grueling experience of indexing a book.
2: <laughs> Ooh,
0: Well, we look forward to reading that. We luckily have your Cinema Journal article we could read right today in your Afterthoughts post. But uh, we'll look forward to your book coming out next year or however long these things take. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with us.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure, Chris. Thank you.
0: If you are interested in seeing some more shot logger yourself, we will link to it on our website, and it is a really cool database that Jeremy's got set up there. So if you wanted to know, for instance, the average shot length in 10 Things I Hate About You, you can go find it there.
1: And this will presumably become a, a growing uh, archive of useful information?
0: Well, and that's the value, as, as Jeremy said in the interview, the ability of computers to do things the human mind can't is, is of course, one of the great values, and so the idea of building up this store of tons of information, visual information about television shows and films, I think has its its benefits.
1: Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does. And one of the things I, I enjoyed about your conversation is essentially reflecting on on how it is that you can use these kinds of tools as raw material for a, for a longer, more extended conversation.
0: And now we're going to turn to the next installments in the Field Notes project, the Oral History Project. So, Michael, you want to tell us what we got coming here?
1: Yeah, this is another installment from SCMS's project, which is you know we're we're having a we've had a chance to look ahead at who some of the future interviews are going to be and some of the ones that they've already got in the can, and they're not just audio interviews like the uh, Thomas L. Sasser interview that we we featured a segment from uh, last time. They're also uh, increasingly shooting these on video. So these are going to be really become a, a great archive. And the interview that we have for you today is just a snippet of a conversation that Thomas Hua has with Linda Williams. I'll allow him to do the introductions.
3: Hello, Linda. It's a great pleasure to have this conversation with you for posterity about your work. Me
4: too.
3: Um, how are you?
4: I'm very well, thank you. I'm enjoying this conference. I just attended a, con- a, a panel on Jump Cut's 40th anniversary.
3: It was a lot of fun talking about the context that we both came from, right, of the 70s and 80s and this kind of alternative film journal. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we segue from that. Um, did that bring back to you a lot of memories of the context in which you started teaching? I think you started teaching in 1977,
4: right? I did. I, my first job was 1977, and I was hired to uh, to teach film because I'd written a dissertation on film, but I had never studied film. I had um, a degree in comparative literature, as a lot of us did back in those days, and um, uh, I was actually hired uh, at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle, as it was called back then, and um, little did I know, I was very excited because I'd read some work by Julia Lesage and Jump Cut, but I didn't realize that I was her replacement.
3: And she'd just been fired. She case. had just been
4: fired, and wow. I stayed at Julia and Chuck's house for... Uh, of a couple of weeks trying to find a place to live in Chicago and got involved in Jump Cut. And uh, I think that my actual kind of nitty-gritty film education came uh, in my association with Jump Cut because I really hadn't been trained as a, as a as a film scholar.
3: In what respect, in terms of critical writing and editing as well? Right.
4: right. I had fallen into... Um, uh, psychoanalytic film scholarship. I got a fellowship to go to uh, Paris to work on Surrealist cinema, um, and but I was coming straight out of a literary background. I just thought that Surrealist cinema was the the most confusing, fascinating thing. So I wanted to make a um, a, a study of it, uh, and I was lucky enough to get into uh, uh, Christian Metz's seminar. So I had some level of the Uh, you know, sort of the high-level theory, but I didn't know anything about teaching film. And everything that I learned, I learned from working on Jump Cut and talking to Chuck and Julia.
3: So it was a kind of corrective influence in terms of hitting the ground running?
4: Yes, I think it was. It was a corrective influence in a lot of ways because, you know, I was coming from the direction of the highest of high theory Lacan, uh, which happened to work with, it it worked very well with Surrealist cinema. I mean, in fact, Salvador Dali had been a member of the Surrealist group, so I didn't have to apologize too much for imposing a theory. It was an organic theory to to Surrealism, but I didn't know how to teach anything, and I was coming from this French avant-garde context into a department of English where it turns out I was forbidden to teach anything French or anything but English. Uh, so I uh, adapted, I learned, uh, and I soon started teaching other kinds of things and working on jump cut and learning what good cinematic writing was. And uh, um, so although my first, uh became my book, my dissertation, my, my first book was, sounded very high theory um, I really, my formation wasn't that. My formation was a little more plain speaking.
3: Um, and this book finally came out in 81, right? Yes, it did. And um, I, I, I guess Jump Cut wasn't really opposed to psychoanalysis as a as a methodology, but they certainly broadened the field, didn't they?
4: Yeah, Jump Cut was uh, uh, supportive of new theory. I mean, I remember uh, reading Julia Lesage's essay on S Z, and and that was why I was so excited to go to uh, Illinois and Chicago and have Julia as my colleague, um, uh, because she was she was explaining it very clearly in a way that anyone could understand. That
3: was a wonderful piece based on, on Bart, and uh, it was. That was late seventies.
4: That was, it, it was, it may have even been a little bit earlier than that. Okay. I may have read it, gone to mm-hmm. France, and then come back and, and uh, uh, gotten to know Julia and Chuck.
3: And uh, you remained in Chicago for several more years, right?
4: Yes, I think I was in Chicago for about uh, 10 years, nine, 9 years, something like that. Uh-huh.
3: And then moved to... Uh, oh, Lotus Land.
4: Then, yes, then I then I got a job in... I would have liked to have gotten a job in Northern California, but I, I was from California, and mm-hmm. I got a job in Southern California at Irvine.
3: Okay, and at that point, you're, you sort of branched out from your jump cut roots.
4: Yes, I, would, I, I, I mean, my jump cut was my education in film and how you do it and also in pedagogy. And um, I... I branched out from that, yes. But, but, on the other hand, I think it's fair to say that my second book was on pornography and had Jump Cut not been very open to essays on pornography, uh, including uh, one by you that I remember reading, and had I not realized that it was possible to write about pornography through my example of reading you and Richard Dyer, in Jump Cut. Um, I don't think I would have been bold enough to do it myself.
3: I think that special issue was 85, if I'm not mistaken. So by this time you were already developing Hardcore? or Yeah,
4: by this time I was, well I wasn't developed, I never, I guess I should explain, I never set out to write Hardcore. I set out to write a book on what I called body genres, that is to say genres of popular cinema that involved the body. That, uh, and I, I was going to do musicals and I was going to do um, uh, even you know, martial arts. I, I was re- just interested in the focus on the body. But the first genre that I started with was pornography because I thought I knew everything that I um, needed to say about pornography. I knew that it was bad, that it objectified women, that it was um, the fetishization of, uh, of, 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 of femaleness. Um, and I was somewhat surprised to discover that pornography as a, as a genre is something that sets out to do one of the most difficult things that you can imagine doing, which is to portray pleasure, to portray bodily, sexual pleasure, and I was, I I started out writing a quick and easy chapter on pornography, and I ended up writing a whole book.
3: And the rest is history.
4: Well, I don't know if it's history, (laughs) but uh, I ended up, to my surprise, with a book on, on pornography that that was written in the midst of the of the wars about pornography uh, amongst feminists, but which I'm glad to say did not get caught up so much in those wars that it couldn't also really just examine pornography as a genre, as a genre trying to deliver pleasure, as a genre that um, does involve uh, female bodies, but which actually delivers Uh, ejaculation Uh, in other words the quest for the pleasure of the female body somehow gets transformed in the course of of, uh, most hardcore pornography into the visible uh, involuntary ejaculation of the male body I thought that was the most fascinating thing why is it the male orgasm that becomes actually the fetish of the search for some kind of confirmation of female pleasure.
3: It was such a courageous book, just to be able to talk about this stuff with a neutral tone and a descriptive tone. But you see, Tom, you had
4: already done it.
3: (laughs) Well, (laughs) for both you and for the Jump Cut special issue, (laughs) there was a a very, very charged context, wasn't there? And people have sort of forgotten it. Uh uh, it was right after uh, Not A Love Story, the, the film by Bonnie Cher Klein, that mm-hmm. Jump Cut had critiqued very fiercely by Ruby Rich. Yes, I we
4: so well remember. Another brave <laughs> yes.
3: initiative. Yes. And so Jump Cut really took a side in the, those wars, contrary to sort of earlier Jump Cut, uh, feminist critiques of pornography, which, as you say, were about the objectification of women and all this uh, kind of analysis, mm-hmm. it's, it's really a major step forward. That and that's
4: what you were calling them on. Is I that was right? trying. Yeah,
3: uh, but so were you. And uh, imagine yeah. in that special issue, wasn't that where they interviewed Candida Royale and some of the feminist porn? Yeah, people?
4: I think it might have been. And what, a,
3: what an amazing thing to do in 1984, <laughs> 85. Yes,
4: yes. It was bold.
3: And uh, so um, we've been talking nonstop about pornography, some, but all the while you were working on lots of other stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
3: weren't you? So maybe we should talk a little bit about that. And uh, we've also uh, been talking almost exclusively about your research and writing, but we should maybe also be talking about your... Well, you, we've also been talking about mm-hmm. your teaching, but mm-hmm. tell us about your research on melodrama and race and how that oh, yeah. started and where that came from, and mm-hmm. where it went.
4: Well, like a lot of feminist film scholars who had um, <laughs> used Laura Mulvey as a kind of a, um, you know, the Bible of how to think about, about um, the problem of women's pleasure in cinema, Um, I had, I think a lot of us who kind of were devoted to Mulvey um, nevertheless wanted to work around it and find ways, uh, exceptions to Mulvey and so one of the things that I did uh, along with a lot of other uh, feminist film scholars of this period was to begin to look at women's films because so-called women's films were films for women and you know, Women were mostly relating to women. I mean, there were the romances, but it was, you know, in a in a soap opery, melodramatic, and somewhat degraded way. These were films for women, um, in which women could go cry at the suffering. So
3: there were also body films.
4: Uh, well, I would I I would later come to say that mm-hmm. yes, but for me it was a it was a feminist uh, gesture to look at to look at women's films. Um, and only later did I begin to realize, well, okay, women in this film—that's a, a a problematic category, as Marianne Don uh, wrote a book about this. Um, and I, somehow it gradually evolved into a broader interest in melodrama, not as a genre, but as I came to see it as a mode, as a as a very pervasive mode in American culture. And so I wanted to write about that as my next big project. And the problem with that is that uh, I look around and I see melodrama everywhere. You know, it's still a term that is used to uh, denigrate uh, a lot of films, cheap emotion, excessive emotion, pathos, music, etc. But actually, melodrama has a history and it changes and it's always absorbing different forms of realism. So once you understand, and Christine Gledel taught me this once you understand that melodrama is not opposed to realism, then you have a very interesting mode that is uh, the way in which most cultures deal with the contradictions that, that exist within that culture. So in looking around for a way to write about melodrama, that would not be too diffuse. I realized that, and this was I was living in in uh, Southern California at the time that O.J. Simpson made his his so-called escape in the white Bronco, and I found myself, along with everyone else, absolutely glued to the screen and fascinated by this case, and then following the trial. And why was I so fascinated? Because I believed that a white woman had been killed with ultimate impunity by a black man. Now, I did not consider myself a racist, but I really had inevitable racial feelings about the verdict in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. And uh, so I, I really wanted to understand that better, and the way I could understand that was actually to look at the history of American melodramas of black and white, in which, on the one hand, and I really went way back to the mid-19th century, the first moment of really strong sympathy by white people for black people was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, Now, if everyone hates Uncle Tom's Cabin now, because the Uncle Tom is a stereotype, but it was brand new to feel pathos for the human suffering of the Christian slave. Um, And then I was teaching Birth of a Nation. I I realized that Birth of a Nation is the obverse of Uncle Tom's cabin. And in fact, that Birth of a Nation kind of concludes its last big spectacle is a cabin that is filled with the former enemies of North and South who are fighting for their Aryan birthright. And so and then I looked at Olive Dixon, the man who wrote The Klansman upon which um, Birth of a Nation was based, and I realized that he was in fact rewriting Uncle Tom's Cabin from the beginning. He had characters uh, like uh, named Simon Legree in his in one of his, I think it's called The Leopard Spots. So uh, I th- realize there's a kind of continuity here, and what we have, and this is what led into the O.J. O- Simpson trial, was a melodrama of black suffering, um, which the black women on that jury saw when they looked at O.J. Simpson case, and then there's the, the melodrama of the white woman suffering at the hands of the black beast, which is Dixon's Klansmen, Birth of a Nation, and that. In a way, we, the, the American culture, in its racial fixity, has been f- has been playing out that melodrama of black and white, um, and and so I just took it through jazz singer, through Birth of, a, uh, through um, uh, Gone with the Wind, through uh, Roots, uh, up to Rodney King and O.J. Simpson. And you know, I tried to I tried to explain to myself why I had felt the way I felt about that trial.
3: And uh, you continued on this topic a little bit further, did you after that book came out what this book came out?
4: Uh, uh, it came out September 2001.
3: Oh my God <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> And uh, did you continue working in this area?
4: I've continued working in the area of melodrama. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I realized that I was, you know, by the melodrama of black and white was in some ways uh, a narrow way. Now I'm trying to think more broadly about melodrama. And I've just written a book on, uh, uh, on The Wire in which I tried to see it from a racial, melodramatic Perspective: What people often do, and many scholars have done this with respect to the wire, is they say it's tragedy, it's a long novel, uh, it's Balzac, um, it's but it's actually it's actually really good, institutionally based serial melodrama. The uh, melodrama work, I think. both what I've tried to accomplish is to understand uh, the history of racial injury and to understand even though it's not uh, on a white racial injury is nowhere near as great historically as black racial injury it nevertheless figures in this back and forth of the melodrama of black and white and then to try to imagine how one can get out of the bind of that kind of dilemma, which is one of the things i tried to do in in the Wire book, which isn't quite out yet.
1: We've been listening to Thomas Waugh's interview with Linda Williams, part of SCMS's Field Notes oral history project. To listen to the rest of this interview and to take a look at the other work that SCMS Field Notes is doing, we'll have links up on our website.
0: fascinating stuff. I'm so glad this uh, project is being undertaken and we do want to thank those who are behind it. So the Field Notes Committee, Barb Klinger, Patrice Petro, and Heidi Wasson. Special thanks to Heidi for being our um, liaison, helping us mm-hmm. get all this material together. Uh, also, a couple of graduate students who've helped out, Matthew Oganowski and Beatrice Bartholomew, and then Andrew Miller, who has uh, recorded these interviews. These are paid for by a grant supporting a research team called arthemis which is based at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. And uh, make sure to check out their website. We'll link to that from our website at acad- hyphenmedia dot org that's
1: where you can find us yep alright so uh, 2015 yes it is mid-season time are you watching any new TV or seeing any good movies
0: I've mainly been hunkered down because I have a writing due date um, which actually was tomorrow, and I had to ask for an extension, very sheepishly. But I'm writing a, a book chapter. It's for an anthology being put together by uh, Stacy Takas and Anna Frola about images of war and militarism on television. And so, I volunteered to do the China Beach chapter, and mainly just because I loved that show, and I hadn't really revisited it since it was first on. And you know, I had hopes it would hold up to my memories, and it pretty much does. It's Pretty incredible show but I'm writing specifically about the final season and the finale and the notion of it's kind of using a little uh, an approach by Sealy Harrington about finales as a death about having to say goodbye and a good finale being the end to a good life lived which is a very interesting way to approach a finale right the idea of a, a goodbye and China Beach is perfect for it because China Beach of course is about death itself and the characters themselves coming to terms with what they have seen with death I'd I'd already started a rewatch with Anna Frola previously, um, but I had to watch then a bunch of the third season and all of the fourth season. So I watched about 32 episodes, I think was the total over Christmas break. And you just sort of keep going one after the next. So, you know, that's
1: one of the things that I think is, I mean, I know that we both have colleagues and friends who have a really hard time even watching television because of that sense. If they'll, if they watch more than one episode, all of a sudden they're stuck and they have to be committed. And um and then maybe have to be committed and um and get they feel like they can't walk away from the narrative and that it's like almost mm-hmm. too much of an obligation um and and i i'm very sympathetic to that because over break i've been trying to I get, I get in this thing where i feel like if i've started watching a show i have to see it through yeah um which is especially a problem with like say doctor who <laughs>
0: yeah right <laughs> or
1: upstairs downstairs or yeah the guiding light but what I've been doing over break is just catching up on the pilots of some shows that are on the TV. The birth. So I'm learning about yeah, death. You, you're you're doing covering birth. I'm, you're doing death. I'm doing birth. Yeah. And things that have been on the air for a while. Like I just watched the pilot of Scandal finally because hmm. I haven't been watching that show. And. Peaky Blinders, you know, little British series, and I have a, I have that same hard time. Like I feel like, oh my god, I have to keep watching the show. I have to work it into the schedule, which is really hard. And
0: one thing, it also just reminded me, I had a, a flight back here, and so I downloaded an entire series to watch uh, on the trip because there was also a bus ride involved. It was a very lengthy thing, but um, I downloaded the the FX show, You're the Worst. Mm-hmm. Which And it was because i had seen so much when it was on. A whole bunch of my Twitter friends were, were talking about it. And I watched it and I really did like it. But the, the point I, w- I want to raise, there's a title sequence to it and it's very short as title sequences are these days. Um, but I found that the more I watched it, the richer that title sequence got because of course the characters were getting richer. So the title sequence is the same, the exact time they're making, or every time making the same facial expressions and so forth. But as they're, and it's about a relationship, a couple who are both the worst, um, and about how it develops and and shifts across the series. And I just, I found, I relished watching that title sequence. Um, not just because it's kind of cute and it's a neat song and all that, but it, it almost kind of, it, like, it semiotically changed with yeah. each episode based yeah. on how that relationship grew. And it just, I found that a really fun factor of it.
1: Yeah, and, th- and that, that enrichment of the text is something that we feel intuitively, but often don't really stop and reflect on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. To, that's great observation.
0: Yeah, and now I have to reflect on saying goodbye to a television show being, like, dying.
1: On that note, Aka Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame as well as a DIRF grant from Denison University.
0: And also a grant from SCMS.
1: Our work would be impossible and inaudible without the support of our co-producers, Todd Thompson at the University of Texas at Austin and Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University.
0: And we would like to thank again our episode participants, so Jeremy Butler and then uh, the Field Notes team, which brought us Linda Williams and Thomas Waugh.
1: We're also grateful for the help of our Academia intern, Jordan Wilson.
0: All right, we will be back uh, soon. And, you know, we do also have the SCMS episode coming up. Just want to tease that one. It's so, coming. Yep, yeah, we're going to have an interview with Casey McCormick, who's going to tell us everything we need to know about Montreal. Everything. Everything. Plus. All of it. And a brand new car. See ya. <laughs>